This is the East Trauma Cast. Hi, everyone. This is Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Upcoming is our East Assembly Compilation Trauma Cast. Thank you to Matt Martin, Joseph Bilal, and Brian Cotton for tweeting about their resident research on our Twitter channel. You can also follow us on the TraumaCast conversation on at East underscore TraumaCast. This year will be exciting for the TraumaCast. First, we're being sponsored by Haymonix this year. Thank you very much for the educational grant. Second, Matt and Dave are both retiring as moderators as they move on to other volunteer positions within East. Thank you so much for all of your advice and your mentorship. For Austin and I are staying on as moderators and we'll continue mentoring new TraumaCast moderators. To that point, I'd like to welcome Aditi Kapil as our new TraumaCast moderator. You may remember her as she interviewed Lori Punch last year on her work on bringing Stop to Bleed into her neighborhoods. For the future of TraumaCast this year, we will be hosting guest moderators from the Online Education Committee. The other exciting news for the Online Education Committee is the East Minute. If you haven't tapped into this resource yet, you should. Our committee posts two, three minute long videos on landmark papers, clinical practice guidelines, Giving Tuesday, and so on. You can find the East Minute on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube East channel. And now, let's move on to the TraumaCast. As always, we get to have one of our favorite interviews for the TraumaCast during the annual scientific meeting. I'm sitting here with Elliot Hott, who is our outgoing president. Thank you very much for being willing to sit with me once again. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So let's go back to your trauma cast you did with me a year ago. When you were coming into your presidency, we talked about how you first joined uh, a committee in 2006. You've done program uh, committee. You've done practice management guidelines. You chaired a committee. You're secretary and president. I think my first question is you're about to become past president. Like what, what is the role of past president? What's your upcoming year going to look like? Uh, so past president still has important roles. I think there's things that we've started that I've promised that I'm gonna try to finish throughout the year. Uh, We had a strategic planning retreat over the summer that there were a few decisions made that need to be operationalized. Uh, So I think I'm gonna help try to continue that throughout the course of the year. Uh, I also chair the nominating committee. And I think the nominating committee, it's a small but mighty group. Uh, It's five people who decide who who the next president-elect board of directors, and the next nominating committee will be. Uh, so I think that will take a, a chunk of time. Uh, I will take a few breaths and relax. I do feel as though I've given you know, 110, maybe 150% to East this year. Not that I'm not, not going to stop giving to East, but it will be nice, uh, as I said in one of the other smaller talks I gave earlier, now I have a little bit of time to do all the papers and reviews and things I owe a bunch of colleagues, partners, and mentees that I said, can I just do that, I don't know, maybe the week after East? <laughs> so I've got a, quite a few of those on the uh, on the agenda. Well, that is, uh, we're actually launching forward about five questions ahead of where I thought this interview was going to go. How, so somebody, so we talk about a lot of the young surgeons in East and that we're here to help develop. But for the mid-surgeons and those who are in the um, on the board or committee chairs or executive um, committee, how, how do you balance family life, local work life, research life, and then also the time commitment that it takes to be a member uh, at that level of East? And, and most of you all are also members of other organizations. Like, how do you find the balance of where do you put the hours in the day? That could literally be a whole other podcast. Um, but I think you have to compartmentalize some certain things. Uh, I do, I would love to play tennis every day. There's realistically no way to do it, but I do block out and play Tuesday nights. And my family knows that, and they're okay because it's good for me. Uh, my work knows that's not a really good day for me. I say no to things on Tuesday nights, so in general I really try to do that. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I really do spend time with my family. So they got here on Wednesday. They came to some of the meeting. They're, in, they're at Universal Studios Park today. And then we're going to stay for a few more days. So I'm going to be here till Tuesday with no work, relaxation. It's only two extra work days, Monday and Tuesday, but uh, it'll be good to decompress with the family. I think that's where the family and the other home things balance. Uh, I think... As far as your question about organizations, you know, if you imagine a big, huge pie, and one slice of that pie, uh, that pie chart is 
volunteer time to national organizations, there's a, there's a few ways to slice up that one slice. Mm -hmm. You can give a lot of little itty bitty slices of it to lots of different organizations and do a little bit here and there. I don't think that's quite as effective. Or you can do a big chunk of your volunteer time for one group. I have put a lot of time and energy into East. Uh, I'm a AAST member. I'm on committees. Uh, I do things. I help that organization. Um, but I think you need to decide there's only so many hours in the day, and uh, that volunteer time for organizations, uh, I think, is better to focus on one or two rather than uh, trying to do everything for everybody. It was kind of like in my presidential address, mm -hmm. uh, don't be a spork. Uh, you can't, you, you can be a member of lots of organizations and you can go to the meetings of lots of organizations and you can be on a committee here and there, but you, you I don't know how, having been the president of Easter a year, but even before that on the board and on the executive committee, it's hard to do five boards or something like that, or president and board somewhere else or things. It's just there's so much, um, uh, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of competing interests. And, and thank you for answering that, honestly. That's been uh, kind of where myself and my co-fellows were kind of reaching that, where do we join, what do we do, how do we put our hours in for the day? And to, to just one compliment, I've met your family a couple of times this week, and they are absolutely lovely, and no one seems distraught with how the past year has affected them. Um, my, my son did get a little benefit out of it. So first of all, I told this story uh, that, you know, my daughter's been to about a third of all mm -hmm. East meetings ever held. Every three years since she's been almost three, or th somewhere in that range, she's been to Disney World around the East meeting. So she went three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18. Like she's been, so she's enjoyed Disney. She's now at Universal Studios. So they do get a little benefit. And uh, because I got to go to Western Trauma this year on behalf of East and represent, I brought my son with me. So he got to learn to ski in like beautiful powder snow because of East. So there is a little, little family benefit there. A little family benefit. I grew up in Michigan. We we learned how to ski on ice, so I have a lot of jealousy to learning how to ski in the West. Um, let me go back to, I asked you last year, I said, what do you think the five to 10 year plan is with East? And then whatever the five to 10 year plan is, how do you think you can impact that in your 12 months? And what you said, I don't know if you remember this, what you said was that first of all, we, we remain a high quality science organization. We focus on teaching and leadership and education as well as community outreach, Stop the Bleed, for example. Um, but one of the biggest uh, kind of charges you had for the committees was that you want a collaboration between the committees so we don't operate in independent silos, that we start to work together, particularly with online education, which is one of my passions. I was curious in reflection of the past 12 months how you feel the collaboration between the committees is going and, and how we can keep improving this to, to make it even stronger. Uh I think that I still think that's an important piece. I want to don't let me forget to talk about guidelines because, as I thought about <laughs> over the year, the guidelines have to be in there somewhere. But back to the collaboration between groups, I think it's great to see guidelines working with emergency general surgery, and I love to see everybody working with online education. There's lots of online stuff that's being offered by lots of different committees, uh, and that online might be the toolkit for East Equity Committee or Task Force. So that's a great opportunity. Go to the website and look at that toolkit. There's a ton of really good work there. It might be the East Minutes and the videos and the GIFs and the visual abstracts, all these things that fall under online education that each committee is putting together. The program committee now has visual abstracts. The guidelines committee is going to get a visual abstract for each one. Um, an East Minute, I go and watch them all and listen to the, the video or in the audio piece of it. I think it's, it's getting there. I think we still have more work to do. So let's go back and talk about guidelines, because that was like the, the cornerstone of your presidential address this year, how you said East is the guidelines. Guidelines are East. Could you highlight some of that kind of concept for our listeners who maybe didn't get to come to the meeting this year? Well, the first thing I would say is eventually the presidential address gets uh, was video recorded, so eventually it'll be on the website somewhere. Uh, so come and watch it. Uh, that's part one. 
Part two is I got to write a manuscript to go along with it. Uh, it will probably be more heavily referenced than some of the other manuscripts um, from other presidents. Because I do want to, I, I, I really, I think it's important to add the data to papers we write like this. Uh, so I'll give you the brief summary. And the brief summary is uh, Mike Rhodes was our sixth East president and gave his talk on trauma practice management guidelines uh, in the 90s. And he started the ad hoc guidelines uh, committee. And since then, East has been the leader in guidelines. And every group, people from all around the world know East because of guidelines. National organizations look to us, the National Quality Forum, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. They look to us about East guidelines. Other sister organizations in medicine write guidelines with us. We go teach about guidelines all around the world. And, and when I say we, it's not just me. There's a bunch of other East members who've been invited to big other meetings to talk about East guidelines. So I think it's, uh, it's our signature product now. Uh, it's interesting to, to realize that the Guidelines Committee was, was created as an ad hoc committee in the mid-90s. It became a standing committee while I was the Guidelines Chair, and that started in 2012. And it was strange for me to think of this thing as an ad hoc committee uh, as opposed to a standing committee for what I feel is the signature item for Guidelines. Uh, I also would say that I gave some examples how the guidelines at East really drive our mission and our core and leadership and scholarship and, and, and mentoring people. I put up slides of residents and fellows who wrote guidelines and residents and fellows who helped implement the data using guidelines and things like that. Uh, it is a great opportunity to get young people and early career people involved in EAST for high quality science. The impact these guidelines have is gigantic. They're guidelines that have hundreds and hundreds of citations. The mean number of, of citations per guideline is over 50. If you go back and look at the papers you've written, not <laughs> a lot of papers get 50 citations. Right, sure, sure. Well, thank you for talking with me this afternoon as we're kind of closing out uh, this year's meeting. Is there anything else you'd like to, to say to our membership and to our listeners um, as kind of the end of your, your current presidency and as you launch into becoming the past president? Um, it was an amazing year. I really enjoyed uh, helping to support East and my East mentees, both formal and informal, and working to grow the organization. I really hope I represented you and the organization well. Uh, one other thing and one picture I had in the presidential address was I got to go represent East at the Medical Firearms Summit uh, put on by the American College of Surgeons. And I wore an East Hawaiian shirt <laughs> Of course, and <laughs> of course I did. And in the picture with 50, 60, 70 people, presidents of all these other organizations, I am front and center. <laughs> There's three rows of people. I'm literally right in the middle of the picture with the official East shirt. I really tried to, to push and promote the organization. And uh, thank you, everybody, for the opportunity to do that. I'm here with Scott Assen, who was one of the residents uh, who presented paper number 25, Hemostatic Potential of Cold Stored Whole Blood Over Time, an Assessment of Platelet Function and Thrombin Generation for Optimal Shelf Life. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Could you let everyone know uh, where you're training? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm training in Calgary in Canada uh, in general surgery residency. Excellent. And before we get into your data, if you could explain uh, for our listeners a little bit, what, what is whole blood? How is that different than the blood that I have at my hospital that we don't call whole blood? We just call it packed blood cells. So the standard uh, blood products that would be in use in the vast majority of hospitals across North America are component therapy, which was uh, invented in the 60s and 70s and consists of packed red blood cells, plasma, and platelets. The blood has been spun down into those various components. Whole blood is 
what it sounds like. So straight from a, a donor and then either Luca reduced, not Luca reduced, um, other things can be done to it. And then it's just stored. And it's really the, it's the most basic product uh, that you could imagine out of blood. And it, it says uh, in your abstract, whole blood is becoming increasingly popular uh, for hemorrhagic shock resuscitation. Can you review for the audience, why is this becoming popular? What's, what's better about it instead of just doing the component therapy you described before? So as, uh, as component therapy uh, began to take over in the 60s and 70s, there were no studies done to uh, assess the efficacy or safety of using component therapy for patients who are exsanguinating. Um, and so over time, we've moved away from uh, a paradigm of resuscitating with crystalloid and red blood cells and gradually moved towards a balanced resuscitation uh, strategy using one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one component therapy. It, so it turns out that if you're if you're using one red one unit of red blood cells, one unit of platelets, and one unit of plasma, you're essentially approximating whole blood. And so the thinking has been that why not just use whole blood if that's the case? And a lot of the data for improved survival, especially um, with whole blood and trauma, comes from the military where for logistical reasons, they were often using warm, fresh, whole blood from like a walking blood bank of soldiers um, instead of component therapy for many, many years. And recently, like within the past 20 years, they've published data showing improved outcomes with whole blood as a resuscitation fluid. All right, so your paper is on cold stored, not warm walking, but cold stored, low titer, whole blood. And currently we have a 21 day shelf life and you wanted to look at that and see if this is the optimal time for storage. So walk us through uh, what your research was and what results you came up with. Sure. So the 21 day shelf life for cold stored whole blood um, was the accepted limit for many, many, many years, like decades and decades. Uh, that's using a CPD as a, a preservative. And this limit comes from research done in the 40s and 50s using very basic chemistry. And so that limit has persisted, has actually been in law for all, decades since then. So there's been no uh, real efforts to, to validate this, uh, this shelf life for whole blood. Uh, and so given that we're starting to use whole blood more and more, um, we thought it would be a good idea to start that process off. Uh, a lot of research has been done, for example, in the, with the age of red blood cells um, and looking at, at various uh, in vitro parameters and also some clinical endpoints, unfortunately, without a very clear answer. Uh, but we thought that we should start this process given that no one has really validated this before. So we we took five units of uh, cold stored non-leuco reduced whole blood. Uh, it's the exact same blood that is used uh, in uh, the trauma center where I perform my research at uh, Memorial Her Herman in Texas. And we plotted the hemostatic parameters over time using modern methods. So looking at thromboelastography, um, multi-plate or uh, platelet aggregometry, uh, as well as calibrated automated thrombogram or CAT. And what did your results show? Is 21 days an optimal time for storage or could we be going longer? So I don't think we could be going longer. Uh, unfortunately, we, it, it may not last even within the 21 day window. So we found relatively preserved or sometimes even increased uh, thrombin generating potential of whole blood uh, using looking at the, at the results from calibrated automated thrombogram. But uh, especially for platelet function measurements, so looking at just the number of platelets that were viable uh, over that 21-day period, as well as the function of the platelets 
uh, as assessed by the maximum amplitude uh, using thromboelastography, as well as multi-plate, we found that the function of whole of platelets in, in whole blood degraded significantly, uh, certainly at the 14 uh, to 21 day mark, but also at the seven day mark for certain parameters. So with that being said, if whole blood is better than component blood, let's say we just accept that as a theory, but the whole blood starts to be worse off because of our platelet function at one and two weeks. And currently component therapy can be stored for much longer. Is a concept out there maybe that we could just keep our whole blood stored longer, but if it's greater than say seven or 14 days old, we pick a time. If it's older than that age, then you also have to supplement your whole blood with platelet transfusions. And maybe we could store our whole blood longer. Is that a concept we could think of for the future? Absolutely. Like that's, that's a, a fascinating question. It's certainly something that, uh, that may be the right path moving forward. Uh, unfortunately, um, using only these in vitro parameters, it's, it's certainly helpful and, and, and it definitely helps to guide future research, but it, it doesn't answer the question for sure of, of what we should be doing. And so uh, there's, there's lots of strategies that, uh, that could be taken um, given the limitations of, uh, of the blood bank and, and using the supply effectively. Um, like for example, uh, it, it is possible to uh, spin out the red blood cells from whole blood uh, after, even after the 21 day shelf life. And uh, there are some centers that are doing that. And so the, the hope is, is that even if the shelf life of, of whole blood ends up being less than our current limit, uh, that we can still use this product effectively and safely. Well, I think you've, you've started certainly some interesting research, and I, I always kind of laugh about what life is going to be like when my granddaughter is a trauma surgeon, and I think she might look back at what we do now and, and think like we even use blood at all, not the synthetic product that, that she might get to use. But there's a lot of uh, work to be done between now and then, and, and I really appreciate you putting some time and effort toward this so that we can figure out the best way to resuscitate our patient. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Thanks so much for having me. I have the opportunity to sit with Dominic Forte as he just finished presenting his research on partial Roboa deployment. Dominic, if you could let us know what uh, institution you're from and summarize your research, that'd be great. Hi, well, thank you for interviewing me. I'm uh, currently an R4 at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, so today I presented the latest in our work on prolonged partial occlusion or partial Roboa. Uh, and so previously we've kind of done some work sort of clinically grounding our partial occlusion goals, sort of targeting an area where you have adequate hemorrhage control while minimizing the ischemic burden. And we found that at least in our injury model, which I'll describe in a moment, a 0.5 liters a minute distal uh, aortic flow seems to produce the best survival for us. Um, and so in this uh, series, what we did is we took 20 animals, divided them between full and a partial Roboa cohort, uh, and then we, for the full Roboa group, gave 60 minutes of complete inflation, followed by deflation. And then in the partial occlusion group, we allowed 10 minutes of full inflation for clot to stabilize, and then prolonged partial occlusion at that optimized 0.5 liter a minute flow rate. And uh, we subjected the animals, of course, the injury was either uh, a combined uh, common iliac or right common iliac artery and vein injury, and the solid organ injury uh, was either, was a uh, transection of the lobe of the liver. Uh, so both producing free intraperitoneal hemorrhage. Now, we, uh, we elected to use 60 minutes uh, for full Reboa to model a prolonged field care approach, as this is kind of the, the future of warfare looking forward, is that we'll lose that air power superiority, and we need to be able to take care of people for prolonged times prior to them reaching definitive surgical control. Uh, so what we found, first and foremost, is that survival was increased with this prolonged partial occlusion technique. That is to say, uh, in the full Reboa group, zero out of five survived in the vascular group and two out of five survived in the solid organ injury group. Whereas for the partial uh, aortic occlusion, we found that four out of five survived in the vascular group and three out of five survived in the solid organ group. Now, uh, 
in looking at the ischemic burden, the ischemic burden appeared to be less in the partial occlusion category as measured by lactate, base excess, pH, uh, and several other serum markers. Uh, we did actually do histology as well, which didn't really show too much difference except decreased renal ischemia with the uh, partial occlusion group. Uh, we also found that there was a correlation between hyperkalemia, relative hypocalcemia, and death, uh, and some future directions we are looking at using calcium-containing resuscitative fluids and sort of preemptive calcium supplementation. Uh, but, yeah, so that's kind of what I presented on today. Yeah. I'm looking forward to your uh, future work, um, especially with regards to the electrolyte imbalances that we get with the ischemic time. Um, if you could try for our audience, try to describe your device, because we're not talking about just the standard ER Reboa that you half inflate. Like this was a particular um, design specifically for partial inflation. If you could try to describe it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very important point is that a lot of the studies you'll see and you actually even see case reports now of folks trying to achieve partial occlusion with the current generation of devices like the ER Reboa. These are not designed for partial occlusion. They really have an all or nothing effect where the balloon collapses rapidly below volume. And uh, it's, it's not recommended uh, by the companies, and I don't think by myself, uh, that you attempt to achieve partial occlusion with these devices. Rather, we had access to a purpose-built partial Reboa prototype, which places in parallel a thin, non-compressible balloon and then your standard compressible balloon. These are filled with the same syringe, such that the non-compressible balloon inflates immediately first and forces the aortic wall away from the compressible balloon, allowing some degree of distal flow throughout its inflation cycle, but still capable of achieving complete occlusion uh, if it's completely inflated. I think that's just an important point to make, is I don't want anyone to hear your research and go back to their home hospitals and start doing partial inflations of our ER Reboa. The other good point to make uh, that you highlighted is that uh, you had your zone one occlusion for over an hour, and I just wanted to be clear with everybody that the uh, standard guidelines right now is that a zone one occlusion should only be used if you're going to get into the operating room within 15 minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, we, we were utilizing this as a model for prolonged field care, not, uh, not as any sort of a best practice for uh, translating this to human work. Sure, especially in the civilian world. Thank you very much for your service and for your presentation. Well, thank you for having me. I'm sitting here today with one of our first presenters of the uh, East Assembly. Uh, Danny Lammers. Danny, if you could tell us uh, where you're from and a little bit about your research. Sure. Uh, so I'm Danny Lammers. I'm a current R3 at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, today I presented our data regarding uh, looking at viscoelastic testing in combat trauma. Uh, overall, we performed a retrospective review assessing the data uh, from the DOD trauma registry uh, where we looked at patients who received uh, viscoelastic testing, specifically Rotem, at a specific Roll 3 facility in Afghanistan and compared that to uh, patients who did not receive that. Uh, from this, uh, we performed multiple analyses to include a, a multivariate logistic regression and propensity score analysis. Uh, the overall outcomes of this, uh, we found that there's a decreased mortality uh, associated with the uh, use of viscoelastic uh, testing to guide resuscitation. Uh, and we found that on regression analysis, the overall odds ratio uh, was 0.63 in favor of viscoelastic testing uh, on a basis of mortality. So one of the, I think that's interesting data to use. One of the frustrating things I have in the civilian center is that I send off my, we use tag, I send off a tag and it takes me 20 minutes to get the results, at, at which point I've already well beyond started my resuscitation. Uh, how did the timing work uh, out in the field with you? Did you have an actual graph being generated in the trauma resuscitation bay while these soldiers were being resuscitated? Yes. Uh, there is, uh, in, the, in this particular roll-through facility, uh, there are multiple um, Rotem uh, machines uh, set up in the resuscitation bays that are used during the ongoing resuscitation. Therefore, uh, providers can uh, accurately get a point-of-time uh, depiction as to the coagulation status of the patient. Yeah, I think that uh, that's how we did it in training. That really is the best way to do it is you have to see it in real time. If you're waiting 20 minutes at that point, you're 15 units of blood products behind and, and you're seeing old data. Thank you very much for your presentation. Good luck um, with the competition, and I look forward to more research from your group. Thank you. I'm here with Jamie Coleman, who was the lead author on one of our landmark papers. 
Paper's called To Sleep, Perchance to Dream, Acute and Chronic Sleep Deprivations in Acute Care Surgeons. Jamie, thank you for sitting with me. Oh, thank you so much. As always, it's an honor. So tell me, let's go back a little bit. Why has sleep been your passion? Because you are like becoming the sleep expert of the trauma community. Well, you know, it's funny. I think this area of research really has dovetailed well into really our lives and a lot of my personal interests in terms of wellness, in terms of work-life integration. So having been in that space more from kind of a op-ed sort of perspective, but then really joining that with what we do as surgeons and as scientists and looking for a way to add some data to it. And that's how I ended up here. Can you give the listeners kind of a brief overview of what is sleep, what are the phases of sleep, and then kind of let us know how you use that information to study it? Well, sleep obviously is very important. <laughs> and and we know that there are a lot of bad outcomes, both physically and mentally, from sleep deprivation. Acute, chronic, whichever, we know that it's bad for us. And yet, we've never studied it in ourselves, in people who obviously are at an extreme end of an extreme population. Not only are we professionals, not only are we professionals in a stressful profession, but then we're stressed at times, at all times, through the night. And when you look at sleep, there's definitely normal variables. There's a normal pattern of sleep. In other words, you start sleep, go into light sleep, slow wave sleep, later on you add REM. And what's great about looking at the sleep cycles is really being able to diagnose difficulties, not just in, okay, I only got two hours of sleep, but maybe you got six hours of sleep, but in a very abnormal pattern, which is also not restorative and not helpful. So tell us about your study. You studied 17 surgeons and you used the um, tracking device, the WHOOP. Um, what did you find in your results? So we started in my former job um, at University of Indiana, and we did it between our two level one centers there. 17 surgeons all participated. It was wonderful. Thank you to my partners if they're listening. And we started with the WHOOP device, which is actually a device that's been used in professional level sports, the NFL, NBA, MLB, et cetera. And we have definitely benefited from the high level of their technology. And we then looked at what do we look like? You know, there's been some, very little even, but there's still been some work in terms of what do surgeons look like during a stressful operation? What do surgeons look like during a trauma activation? But no one said, hey, what do we look like three hours after that tough trauma activation? What do we look like two days after that really bad call? And so during that study, 17 surgeons wore the WHOOP device for three months, and we looked at abnormal sleep, which we are in the vast majority of time. Excluding nights of call, we slept only six and a half hours. And what's interesting about that number is that it's actually been shown an increase in mortality rate in patients or in people who average less than six hours of sleep. Hmm. So your first reaction might be, oh, we're doing pretty well, we're doing six and a half. That's excluding our nights of call. Because when you start throwing in our call nights, we absolutely average less than six hours of sleep a night. And it was a really eye-opening moment for me in terms of the health impact um, on us during doing this job. And I think actually another interesting point is I took a flight and I was actually sitting next to a pilot who had just finished a simulation training. They're required to do simulation training every six months in order to be able to continue flying, no matter how long of a career they've had. And he said to me, you know, part of the problem with young pilots is them understanding that the best preparation for the air is done on the ground. And I think for us, a lot of the best preparation for the stress in the hospital is what we do outside of the hospital. And that's what we'll be doing and really teasing out in the current study. Thank you for participating as well, Dr. Valdez. You're welcome. Um, the sur surgeon performance or the super trial, which is currently undergoing with over 200 surgeons across the country. Well, that's excellent. The first paper is the landmark paper, the one that we're talking about today. Uh, you can go to the EAST website and look under education, and there'll be links to um, uh, landmark papers that you shouldn't have missed this year if you couldn't be at the conference. Thank you so much for uh, letting me interview you and wearing this WHOOP device and learning all about sleep. Thank you so, so much for having me. I appreciate it.
I have a great chance to interview Stephanie Streit. She's one of our surgeons who is the co-chair of the Military Committee for East. Stephanie, thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time. Thank you very much. I'm happy to do it. So every year, obviously, the uh, military is very involved with EAST, and typically we do the joint, excuse me, the case reports of the joint trauma systems. This year we did something a little different. This year at EAST we did the parallel um, plenary session, which was trauma, emergency, and humanitarian surgery in austere settings. We discussed cases, some ethical conundrums, and compromises. And Stephanie, um, while she co-chairs the committee, she also presented one of her own cases. I thought it was fascinating. I don't think there's a dry eye in the house. Um, and just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a, a feel for what this session was like, if you wouldn't mind, Stephanie, just tell us, you know, in brief about your case and kind of what some of the ethical conundrums were. Yeah. So my case took place in uh, Eastern Africa. It was on a humanitarian deployment that was somewhat short notice. Um, I didn't have really a chance to get a good sense of the culture uh, that I was coming into or really the needs in my role uh, in this particular hospital. Um, And then I had a case where a young woman um, had an emergency general surgery problem that we're all very familiar with, but uh, presented in a somewhat unique way. She had perforated appendicitis, but it had been 10 days, uh, and she had a bowel obstruction and had, you know, a smoldering sepsis. And ultimately, she was in the ICU. She was placed on the facility's only ventilator. Um, And because of the way that the hospital functioned, the ICU was staffed by the host nation anesthetist overnight. Um, And it was pretty clear that my presence wasn't welcome, uh, even though my my surgical covenant, my my commitment to the patient um, was sort of urging me to stay. Um, And when I came back the next day, she had died. Um, her ventilator had been given to another patient who had a head injury. Um, a triage decision had been made. It was one that I probably would have disagreed with had I been there. Um, so there was a layer of, of um, limitation and resources that created an ethical consideration. But there was also a conflict um, for me personally not understanding the cultural context of that country. Um, when I became upset and when I cried for the loss of life, um, it was almost viewed as an insult to the uh, providers there. Um, both that I they it, they took it to mean that I, that I thought they made the wrong decision, but also that um, I clearly didn't understand their culture. Um, and so I, I had an opportunity to learn a lot from the case, which is why I thought um, it might be something that somebody else could learn from too. And you did a really nice job of summarizing 15 minutes of, like, heart-wrenching discussion on ethics and, and back and forth. And as someone who also does uh, medical missions, I don't do it in the traumatic environment. I do it in the elective environment. I've been faced with some of those conundrums in the in the past, especially with, when it comes to consent. Um, I was wondering if you had any issues with, I don't know if consent is the right word, or maybe, like, delve into a little bit more about how did you feel that somebody else who's the overnight non-surgical provider making decisions about the best care for your patient? And and you said it had you know upset you, but then how did you manage that on, on scene? Well, I didn't manage it very well, to be honest. Um, I, I huffed, and I think I might have stomped a little um, in a really, it was really immature, honestly. And um, this is my first year out of fellowship that this happened. Um, and like I said, I think my reaction to it, while in my mind it showed how much I cared and it showed how I was invested in what I was doing, um, it was received as uh, being an, an insult to their decision making and to the care that they provided and to the, to the man who got the ventilator. Um, my reaction was an insult to all of that. Mm. Um, And so it definitely, after time and after a lot of reflection, I definitely learned a lot from that. Well, thank you for sharing that story. um, I think it's helpful to get some good insight for anyone who's going to go do a mission in the future to kind of listen to stories like this so they don't either step on the same toes or be insulted or or insulting. Um, And also kind of protect your own emotions because these are different norms from our culture. Right? They're not better or worse. We're not better or worse. They're just different. 
Um, for those of you that are still interested in the joint, excuse me, the case reports of the joint trauma system, these will be presented at the AAST meeting this fall. I really, really hope that we get to continue on uh, with the uh, ethics meeting that we did today, or excuse me, yesterday. It was just, it was awesome. It was really, really like a touching and I think very important sessions to, to have at the East meeting. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm here with Leah Tatebe, who just finished up doing the Engage the Masters session. It's one of my favorite sessions that I also got to participate in when I was a fellow. Leah, for our listeners, would you just let them know what the Engage the Masters session is all about? Sure. It is a case presentation-based session where we get to present difficult cases that have come up over the last year and get to have the insights of experienced very senior trauma surgeons to see how they would handle the situation. It's also one of the most entertaining sessions as well because it's nice to watch the senior surgeons bat at each other a little bit. Um, tell us about your case. What were some of the main points and what were your takeaways? We had a gentleman who was overturned in a semi that was uh, stuck uh, down in a ravine. They could not get him out. Uh, it was over an hour and a half long attempted extrication and we were asked to come to the scene because we may need to amputate his leg to be able to get him out. Is that something that your team has had to do frequently, is actually go on scene? No, no. It's something that has happened, I believe, twice. Uh, my, mine would be the second time in just over a decade. What were some of the uh, complicating or controversial points of your case that you got to discuss today? One was sort of bringing blood on scene and whether or not you can actually release blood into the pre-hospital setting, making sure you have procedures and policies in place to know what that what that would be and how do you do that. Um, work with the legal team to know what your protections are in working in the field. Other main thing is when to actually perform a field amputation. If it's a mangled extremity, it makes it pretty easy. Um, but in this case, his leg was actually pristine and it, we only discussed possibly amputating it once it became an absolutely life-saving measure. The other big concern was how do you manage an airway in the field and a person who you can't actually intubate because there's things obstructing around his head. Uh, do we do a superglottic airway? Do we go straight to a crike or just attempt uh, the amputation with just sedation alone? So you were very lucky. Uh, they finally, from your story, got the guy's boot cut so he could slide out of the boot and get unstuck. Then how did his hospital course go? Yeah, we, we did get very fortunate. The EMS team did an absolutely amazing job working in separate teams to over three hours, and they were able to get him out just in time as he was starting to deteriorate. We got him to the hospital pretty quickly, got a chest tube in him. Um, he was very, very acidotic. He required a lot of resuscitation, and uh, overall he did, he did well. He was intubated for eight days, but was able to get off. He had dialysis for four days, but then was able to get off. Um, and he had, a, he had a long, complicated, slow recovery, but, but he made it back, and he still has his leg. That was a really great save. If, uh, if you're coming to East next year, we generally have this session um, at each of the meetings. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's, it's something you should not miss if you have any chance. Thank you so much for sitting with me. Thank you. The upcoming interview is a little bit quiet and difficult to hear due to background noise. We have had some feedback on TraumaCast about our sound quality, and I understand your frustrations. I promise we try our best as a little army of volunteers, but to hear Camille, I had to amplify the entire interview, which makes for us quite loud. Please grant me some forgiveness for the upcoming interview. I include it in our compilation because I think the research is important and it's cutting edge. Plus, Camille was the first presentation of the meeting. Way to go, Camille! Stick with it. It's about six minutes. And then the following interview is with Britt Christmas, our current president. Hi, everyone. This is Faraz Mabek. Uh, we're at the East Scientific Assembly in Orlando, Florida. And I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Camille Hanna to a special episode of this trauma cast. Uh, Dr. Hanna is a research fellow at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And he just presented his paper entitled uh, Treatment of Blunt Supervascular Injury Anticoagulation anticoagulants or antiplatelets. So welcome, Dr. Hanna. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here in Orlando and it's really a nice conference. So what inspired you, uh, guys, it's a great study. Uh, what was what spawned the, um, the project in the, in the first place? Uh, so our group has really, I've been for the past few years, really interested in the mechanism of coagulation following trauma and all the derangements that could happen either in the like hypercoagulant state or the hypercoagulant state. And I personally have, a, have been looking into the data and the recent literature on the topic, and then more, more specifically like the study by the Western Trauma Association about the time to scroll, and then examining the data more carefully, even though the study wasn't designed 
to answer efficacy about either treatments. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was looking at the data to see whether we can find an optimal treatment for patients with BCVI in order to prevent uh, CVA, which is a really big problem, uh, even though the incidence is low but has a devastating effect on mortality and morbidity. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of uh, how the interest was generated. And uh, doing more reading, I was able to uh, think that maybe the nationwide readmission database, which gives longitudinal data, can allow us to look into the long-term outcomes following, which is something that's not very much found in the literature. Mm -hmm. Is the current practice at your center uh, based on grade? Uh, yes, it is based on treatment modalities are based on grades at grade of injury, and we follow, like, uh, for example, patients with grade one and grade two would require antithrombotic therapy, but. But then the choice of antithrombotic therapy is where the controversy is, which the reason why we did this study, and it's at our institution currently like dependent on the discretion of the attending physician, uh, and it also depends on the presence of other injuries, like some people favor antiplatelet agents uh, because they're more tolerated in polytrauma, but others like give anticoagulant agents, and this is why we wanted to answer this question in order to find the optimal agent that would more, that is most effective at reducing stroke, when this allow the risk allows us in the patient population. Very good. So. Briefly, kind of go over the methodology and how you uh, conducted your study. Okay, so the so first we used the nationwide readmission database, and then we selected patients with or adult trauma patients presenting with a primary diagnosis of BCVI, which could either be a carotid or vertebral injury, and this could be of any grade. But then one thing we did is that we selected isolated BCVI, so we excluded injuries outside occurring in other body regions other than the neck, and this could perhaps influence the generalizability of our findings. But uh, we had to do this in order to like, minimize bias in our data for methodological reasons. And then after that, we stratified that based on those who received antiplatelet versus anticoagulant agents, which we also were not able to determine exactly like what antiplatelet agent that is something we would look, have to look into for the future. And uh, we propensity matched them based on all the variables we have in our database in order to obtain a fair comparison. So this basically sums up the methods in our study, and then we look at the outcomes, post-discharge outcomes, like as mortality, readmission with stroke, and the time to stroke. We believe those are important parameters to answer our question. Mm -hmm. And what did you find? And then, interestingly, we found out that patients who received anticoagulant agents had a significantly lower rate of CVA occurring within six months, even though the overall incidence of CVA was low, so it was like 3%. But still, it was lowered by around threefold in patients who received anticoagulant agents. And mortality was also lower, so this has also an effect on mortality. But the time to stroke didn't, didn't differ between the two groups. It could be like that uh, we needed a bigger sample size to detect the difference, but like the time to stroke was the same between the two groups. So it's going to occur less than those who receive anticoagulants, but if it's going to occur, it appears that it's going to happen at the same time when compared to those who received antiplatelet agents. So this is the main findings of our study. And this is kind of like an agreement with some of the studies in the literature about like, an overall trend towards improved outcomes with anticoagulant agents. Well, a couple of areas that are still kind of open to debate. First, in terms of monitoring, did you use any uh, anticoagulation monitoring, use PTT or NT10A, as far as um, identifying the efficacy of the anticoagulation? Exactly. This is something that we also wondered because, unfortunately, we, with the protocol regarding the treatment, like, uh, what like whether these patients were molest and then what target PTT was being uh, pursued is something that we were not able to determine. So this is one of the things that could influence the outcomes and the conclusions of the study. So we hope if we can get more granular data with newer versions of the database, because the problem is that building our own database would require like 10 years or even more to get a good sample because this injury is, uh, is rare. This makes the study of this disease difficult. So we have to rely on nationwide data, but with the limitations that come with it. And in terms of follow-up, was there any uh, surveillance imaging, uh, either during the same hospital stay or as an outpatient? Yeah, follow-up was fun for a period of six months, and this was based on a stroke confirmed on a CTA and uh, CTA, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So what, what are the next steps? Where do you see uh, this research going? So I think the next step in this uh, analysis is like obtaining more granular data which will help us like, overcome some of the limitations because unfortunately like some of the limitations would require randomized study design which is a very big endeavor and in terms of cost and in terms of time and acquiring the sample size requires a longer time so this is why the this is why we've looked decided to look into nationwide data but if we have more granular data 
and and these all these types of questions could be and limitations can be overcome. So the next step would be like obtaining better data, prospective study designs, and uh, like having like a, a wider spectrum of variables in order to answer our questions. All right, Dr. Hanna, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations. Great so, work. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time. All right, I get the opportunity to sit with our incoming president, Britt Christmas. Uh, Britt, welcome to the TraumaCast. Hi, great. Thrilled to be here, Carrie. And, um, you know, this has become one of one of these trademarks, if you will. So uh, it's always, always great to do something, do something new and get it out to the membership. Well, one thing I like to do at every meeting is we do our compilation, uh, which was the beginning of this trauma cast. And I always end this trauma cast with a compilation from the meeting and a conversation with our incoming president. Um, the place I wanted to start with this interview is if you would take us through your East story, what was your first East meeting? How did you get involved? And uh, kind of what has been your uh, history with East? So um, my first East meeting was uh, back in 2005. Um, I actually attended East to present a poster that I had done during during my fellowship year. And, um, you know, for a person that initially planned to do a surgical critical care fellowship and join a private practice general surgery group and bring the critical care billing aspects to the practice, I uh, quickly realized kind of the camaraderie and, and what what fun research could be Whenever I, I got around got around the groups, most noticed notably uh, East early in my career. And then after you presented, um, did you join as a member when you were a resident? Did that happen once you had graduated? Uh, I actually joined once I had uh, graduated. Um, I remember uh, attending uh, and being inducted into East during the Amelia Island Amelia Island meeting uh, where it snowed on the beach. The uh, usual weather curse of east if you will mm -hmm. um then after you know after that i uh i actually ran into dr Couric at a double ast meeting and uh we were talking about organizations and you know involvement in the camaraderie in the group and uh he he actually mentioned to me to, to that i may want to check out you know east and get involved in a committee that the organization was always looking for you know, for people to join committees and, and help with the workload. And so I, um, I actually decided to, uh, to put my hat in the ring when the, the call for volunteers came out and uh, started on the careers committee. And then through the, you know, through the years, I, um, I also applied for a leadership development scholarship early on and received that. So that started started plugging me into some of the workshops and the inner workings of East and the committee work and everything that was going on. And then after I had fulfilled my time on the careers committee, I um, then went to the program committee and uh, was on that for two years. And during that time, I had also applied and became the the inaugural scholarship recipient for the Brandeis scholarship through East. Um, you know, kind of kind of looking at what I could do to further develop my my leadership skills, you know, both within the organization and, you know, in, in daily life. Um, after that, I uh, was then um, asked to uh, chair the injury prevention committee. And at that time, um, you know, Shahed Chaffee, Wendy Green, Thomas Duncan, and, and uh, several other members had initiated the community outreach project uh, the year before. Um, so that really became one of the signature items of, of East as we took those ideas, started to move it forward and give back to the, the community, which was hosting our, our annual meeting. Um, you know, and, and around this time was also when when we had the the Sandy Hook incident, multiple bouts of firearm violence and had members from the AAST and COT reach out to us at East uh, to, to see what we could do as far as evidence based reviews. So, um, 
that became really one of the, the major focuses during my tenure on the, the Injury Control Violence Prevention Committee and, you know, and with the Community Outreach Project. Um, after that, I uh, had always been a, a staunch advocate for the advanced practice providers within trauma and our practices and was actually one of the first publications I ever logged as a, as a fellow. So um, after my tenure on injury prevention, I was, I was called to serve as the, the chair for the advanced, uh, advanced practitioner committee um, to kind of assess their needs and see what the relationship would be between EAST and STN and how we could better provide for that group. Um, we ultimately ended up uh, sunsetting that, that committee, but at the same time, we developed an even stronger relationship with STN and our advanced practice providers and the annual workshop that we now do at EAST and another at STN and taking the APPs and being able to distribute them amongst all of our committees, similar to the, the physician aspects, since a lot of their practice mirrors what we do as physicians at our respective centers. So um, I then came back on the board as the treasurer and uh, served a, a three-year term, um, which we've been very successful with, you know, some excellent meetings and revenue from those meetings. And, and during that time also managed to increase the corpus on the development fund, which was one of the, the major initiatives for, for President Bernard when, when he came through and most recently served a year as president-elect and was recently inducted as president about a week and a half ago. That's a quite a career. <laughs> I was just yeah. thinking of, I'm on my uh, I'm chairing my very first committee, and then I, I listen to all the things you've done in the past 15 years. It's, it's impressive. Did you um, kind of have this idea in mind for the past 10 years that you were hoping to go onto the board, the executive board, and maybe someday be president, or or is this a new idea for you? This it, it's just such a huge time commitment of volunteering. I was wondering when you kind of came to that um, idea and decision that you would be willing to volunteer so much of your time on this upcoming year? Um, and to, to be quite honest, this, this was never anything that, that I set out in my career that, that I would have thought I would have achieved or, or even been striving for. It's, um, my, my thought was always to show up and help in any capacity that I could for an organization that I, I truly love. And my mindset, and many people don't know this, is I was raised uh, the son of a banker and was looking at going to law school, doing finance law, and um, actually decided to go into medicine because it, it just appealed to me. And so when I made that choice, and then chose surgery, I kind of said, everything I do from here on out, I am all in. That uh, however far it can, it can take me, whether it be in patient care, the affecting a national change, whatever I can do to make the greatest impact on the greatest number of people, that's what I'll set out to do. And it's, um, you know, for, for East, I showed up, I became involved, I, I worked hard to do what, you know, whatever the, the organization, my committee chairs and, and anyone needed, because I knew that everything we were doing at the time, and as I was coming through these committees, what we're all doing is affecting change on a national level, which is much greater than what we're even doing on a day-to-day -day basis in, in patient care. So for, for me to, to have ascended to the presidency is, uh, I mean, truly humbling. And, and I would say nothing that I, I ever imagined in my career would, would even be on that radar. 
So now that you've reached this opportunity and you can start to have some impact on a national level, as well as to be fair, a lot of what we do also impacts our, our day-by-day uh, clinical practice. What is your um, kind of vision or direction that you'd like to take East over this next year? So I, I think that looking at our organization, we've always been a young, strong organization focused on development for young career trauma surgeons and acute care surgeons as our, our practices have evolved. And I think for us that we are looking at an organization that has been growing by leaps and bounds over the last 10 years and all of the collaborations that we've developed from the initiation of the Pediatric Trauma Society and STN and our ongoing work between those groups. And from my standpoint, I think what we sometimes forget in our daily lives is all the positive that we bring to the world, to our patients, to our communities, that as, as surgeons, we are typically trained to focus on our, on our failures and how to get better. And I think for us, we also have to realize the positives and the impact that we have and do a better job of communicating that out to the public. And that's, that's why I really believe in advocacy, education, and really taking the opportunities to get out into the communities and show the benefit that, that we provide and will continue to provide in the areas where we have all of our trauma centers and trauma surgeons and injury prevention specialists. What would you say to members who want to get involved? And there's two, there's two types of members I'm thinking of right now. One is someone who's already on a committee. Um, and then one is a member maybe who just got inducted this past uh, uh, month or who has been a member of East but hasn't been on a committee yet. How can they get involved? Because it, it, your pedigree through East is, is a long list of, of kind of some big important things you did, but not everyone has that much time. So how can we do some little things and encourage the membership? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost is we are, you know, we're an organization that if, if people want to get involved, um, especially for the leadership, it's it's our job to, to make those efforts for the, the young career surgeons and, and look for the call for volunteers. When that gets sent out, people need to, to just sign up as a starting point. And at that point, it is the up to the, the president-elect to look over this list and, and truly try and make sure that everybody gets a position somewhere on some committee to at least get a starting point. Once you get on that committee, I would say don't, don't shy away. Um, show up for the conference calls. Uh, you know, interact with the committee chair or whoever a, a section lead is within the committee when when people are, are looking for project leads or assistance, um, the best way to get involved is to, is to truly step forward. And then what I would say is when you do, make sure you attend. Showing up is, is one of the biggest pieces, whether it's for a conference call, for an annual committee meeting, but then follow through and, and help finish whatever product you're, you're working on. And people, people recognize the efforts that, that everyone puts in and, and going, you know, and going forward. And then the, the other thing is, is, you know, we, we all have to decide how much do we really want to be in the game. And, and the more involved you, you want to be, the opportunities there and you just have to, you just have to reach out and truly, truly seize it. Um, and as far as, anyone in leadership, committee chairs, all the way up to the president of the organization, I would, you know, I would tell any member, come up and, and speak to us, speak to any of us. And, and if you have, you know, you have questions, ideas, anything at all, we want to hear them because what we want to do is figure out what the next great innovation is for this organization and what we can do to continue to support and develop our our young trauma surgeon. 
And I'd like to just tag on to that for any members who are looking to get involved. Don't be scared of any project. If you're interested, we'll teach you how to do it. When Dave Moore's called a few years ago and asked if I would be on the TraumaCast, I said yes because it sounded interesting, but I had never edited or recorded my own voice in history. So we we can teach and we can figure it out together. And I think I think we've done a, a reasonable job of, of kind of sorting the trauma cast out. So if, if I can figure this out, you can figure out whatever project it is that you want to get involved with. Um, well, I, I do appreciate you taking some time uh, to talk with me today. And I was wondering if you have any uh, closing thoughts or anything you'd uh, like to say to the membership before we sign off. I would just like to say that uh, I'm in, in being involved with this organization now for 15 years and watching it grow and thrive and and all of the things we've we've accomplished i could not be more proud of any organization of which i'm i'm a member and the great thing about that is i think we have so much more that we can accomplish when you look at the the ideas and the dedication and the enthusiasm of our membership. I, I firmly believe we are an innovative organization that's that's sailing into to clear blue waters at this point. We are we are growing with members, with numbers, and with those ideas. And I think what we have to do is continue to foster those and develop those. And there is no limit for for what this organization can achieve. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.